Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. How does a squid go into battle? Well-armed. What do sea monsters eat? Fish and ships. I am so excited to introduce today's guest to you. Dr. Edie Witter is a three times TED speaker and the first person to film the giant squid. Her work has been featured in BBC, PBS, Discovery Channel, and National Geographic. In this episode, she unveils her journey to marine biology, how she filmed the giant squid, and her current vital research closer to shore as the founder of Ocean Research and Conservation Association, or ORCA for short. I have been following Edie and her work at ORCA and the Kilroy Monitoring System for about a decade now, and I am so thrilled to be able to share this episode with you. Please enjoy. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Edie, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. It's good to be here, Kara. Your career has ranged really broadly. You've gone gone to the deep, dark ocean, and you also work in shoreline communities, and I'm really excited to dive into this. What got you interested in studying the ocean in the first place? I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was 11 years old and got to see a coral reef, mm-hmm. and I just was blown away. I was already pretty enthralled by living things in general, and had already decided I wanted to be a biologist. But once I saw that coral reef, I knew I wanted to be a marine biologist. (laughs) Where was the reef? It was in Fiji, actually. Um, My parents were both uh, PhD mathematicians. And uh, the year I was 11, we traveled most of that year and I got to see some pretty amazing stuff. That's incredible. Fiji coral reef, yeah, that would make a lot of people, I think, consider a career in the ocean sciences. So you knew that you wanted to study marine science going into college, and you actually uh, studied biology at Tufts, and then went on to do your master's in biochemistry, and then a PhD in neurobiology, which I thought was really interesting, because it's not, I mean, it's not strictly marine science. So what prompted those choices? Well, um, my usual answer to that question is uh, that I, by the time I got to college, I realized that nobody gets to be a marine biologist. It's (laughs) it's a really tough road to hoe, but there was actually another factor. Um, So my freshman year in college, I had to go in for back surgery Hmm. and um, uh, it went very wrong and I ended up blind. Oh my gosh. uh, and uh, so I was blind in my left eye for um, 
almost a year in my right eye for several months. And um, it, it left me feeling very insecure about life and, you know, recognizing that things could change in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And so um, I initially thought, well, I needed to be more cautious about my job prospects. And so I was kind of always looking for an off ramp. I was always trying to think about, well, what's plan B if this doesn't go right? Mm -hmm. And so I still wanted to be a marine biologist, but I felt like, okay, not too many people get to do that. So maybe if I study things that I could, where I could study like biochemistry or neurobiology, um, working on marine organisms, I had a better chance of a career down that path. So why bioluminescence then? Well, the lab that I did my PhD in, um, that was something they worked on was bioluminescence. And uh, I was actually doing the neurobiology on a bioluminescent dinoflagellate. Um, and initially the fact that this critter could make light was uh, just a convenience for recording its response to electrical activity. But I got more and more enthralled by this ability of animals to make light and I wanted to learn more about it. Uh, and then my major professor who was just a wizard at um, getting grant money, uh, got this major grant for this really cool new piece of equipment that was a uh, the latest and greatest in spectrometers that can measure the different colors of light. Mm. Uh, and it was super, super sensitive. And I'd always been a gadget freak. I, I love technology. And so when it came into the lab, I couldn't keep my hands off it. And so I kind of figured out how to make it work and how to get it calibrated, which, which was completely trivial. And uh, then once I had it working, he said, well, now that you've got this operational, I think we need to start sending you to sea to measure all these animals in the ocean that make light. And suddenly I was the thing I'd always wanted to be, a seagoing marine biologist. <laughs> and it was, it was mind blowing because um, I was going out on these expeditions with a scientist that had developed this method of trawling, of dragging nets behind ships um, in a way that was able to bring the animals up alive. Usually when you drag nets behind ships and bring animals up to the surface, they die. Not so much because of the pressure differences, because of the temperature differences. Mm. It's so much warmer in surface waters than deep waters that, that they're basically cooked. And so he developed this net that had a, um, a device on the end of it that closed the animals in cold water and brought them up alive. And so I was seeing these live animals and recording their bioluminescence and just becoming enthralled with every aspect of these crazy, crazy creatures that would come up out of the net that could make light in all kinds of bizarre ways. And uh, I was on an expedition that was using uh, a tool for exploration. It was a diving suit called WASP and it was developed by the offshore for the offshore oil industry for diving on oil rigs. And I was with this group of scientists that were testing as, as a tool for exploring the deep ocean. And I, I wasn't trained as a pilot, but I would get on the headset and I would ask whoever was down in the suit to turn out the lights and please tell me what they saw, because I knew they would see bioluminescence. 
and these supposedly dispassionate scientists would turn off the lights and then all I would get would be, oh man, that is so cool. Wow. <laughs> and I, you know, I'd say, well, could you be a little more specific? <laughs> and they were terrible at it. And so the chief scientist took pity on me because he could see I just desperately, desperately wanted to see for myself. And he said, well, you know, if you, if you train for a year, um, we could probably get you certified as a pilot and you can go down and see for yourself. And I already had a postdoc lined up at that point in Madison, Wisconsin, a really pretty sweet postdoc. But on the basis of that promise, I, I turned it down and stuck around and lifted weights for a year to be able to qualify to use those Michelin Man arms on the WASP. And uh, um, my first dive was in the Santa Barbara Channel. And I, I went down to 880 feet, which just seemed like an impossible depth, um, mm -hmm. although the suit can actually go to 2,000 feet. And uh, I turned out the lights, and I knew I was going to see bioluminescence, but I just wasn't prepared for how much I saw. There was light everywhere around me, flashing and glowing. It was exactly like a fireworks display, only I was in the center of it, and it was breathtaking, and I felt like this has got to be one of the most important processes in the ocean, given how much energy is involved in producing light. And I, I thought, you know, why aren't more people studying this? And I've been studying it ever since. Amazing. There's something very poetic about how you went from being blind and then now you're studying light. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question my fascination with light and vision does have some of its roots in that experience. Mm. So could you explain what the WASP is and how it works? I mean, it's, it's a suit that you climb into and it's roughly built like a giant human. It kind of looks like Avatar, like the, the mechanical suit that people climb into in Avatar, but it goes in the yeah. ocean. Um, and is it t it's tethered to the ship, correct? Yes, it's got a tether. Um, and it, it's called WASP, not because that's an acronym. It doesn't spell out anything. It's just somebody kind of thought it looked like the insect because it's got this big bulbous head and yellow body <laughs> and these insect pincers on the, on the ends of its arms. Um, it doesn't have legs for walking on the bottom. It's, it's for midwater, so it's got thrusters. Um, and you fly the suit by controlling foot switches in the bottom of the, the suit. So if you want to go forward, you tilt your feet forward. If you want to go back, you tilt your feet back. If you want to go to the left, you tilt both feet to the left, right, both feet to the right. And if you want to go down, you tilt both feet in. And if you want to go up, you tilt both feet out. So it's like the best video game ever. <laughs> uh, and actually, you know, in my first dives, I, I felt comforted by having that tether there to protect me. But over time, I, I grew to be annoyed by the tether because it kept getting in the way. It, even though you can control the buoyancy of the suit and, and kind of decouple yourself from the, the tether, it's still connected to the surface and the ship's bouncing up and down. So you're bouncing up and down. So that was um, eventually became to be an annoyance. And, and then the, the next year, we dove a different kind of submersible called Deep Rover, which was also a single person sub, but it was untethered. Mm. And it could go to 3,000 feet in the ocean. So did that require extra training? Yep. So when, when I trained for WASP, 
we trained in a big tank in Port Wainimi in California. Um, but Deep Rover was such a large submersible, there was no tank big enough for it. So that one, we just had to memorize a manual for how to fly the thing. And there's no way to have somebody come down with you the first time. So all they did the first time was uh, hang you off a hook um, on a, a crane and have you go through various checks, make sure you know how to use the different thrusters and control the buoyancy and communications and all of that. But then um, once you proved you could do that, they left you off the hook and let you off the hook and you just go play. And it really is playing. <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. So you're flying this mini spaceship through the ocean, mini ocean ship. <laughs> yep. What What were some of the things that you saw? Well, the first time they let me off the hook, um, literally, we saw the water. It was only about a hundred feet deep, um, and uh, it was amazing because it was Monterey Canyon. Um, and there were all these beautiful anemones and starfish. And we, there were, I think I saw five octopus on that first dive. And amazingly, uh, a grebe, a bird dove down in front of me. I was, I was, I don't remember, I was at like 30 or 40 feet. I couldn't believe I saw this bird going by me. <laughs> <laughs> and a sea lion went zipping by. It was pretty amazing. Oh, that's really awesome. What a cool experience. So you're hooked. You are diving in submersibles, you're studying bioluminescence, and you're absolutely hooked. Right after that, is that when you went to Harbor Branch to continue your research? The reason I was able to satisfy my fascination with bioluminescence is actually the United States Navy had an interest in it. Mm. And, um, and so uh, I actually ended up doing my postdoc in the same lab that I did my PhD because my major professor, who, as I mentioned before, was brilliant at getting money, got this huge grant from the Navy to develop a new tool for um, measuring bioluminescence in the ocean. Mm. And uh, pretty much the brunt of that project fell on my shoulders because he was um, vice chairman of uh, research at UC Santa Barbara and far too busy to be uh, honchoing a project of that size. So I took charge of it. Um, and uh, that was a big, big effort. Um, yeah. this, is, this, is the of, this is the HIDEX. That's what we uh, ended up calling it. Um, <laughs> HIDEX was an acronym uh, that stands for high intake defined excitation, which were the two things that made it very different from any any kind of bathyphotometer, which is what you call a light meter that, that measures bioluminescence in the ocean. So it was a HIDEX BP. Um, and the idea was that, you know, previously, it, it's actually pretty easy to measure light uh, from bioluminescence in the ocean. There's a lot of plankton down there that makes light. So all you've got to do is have a, a sensitive light detector and pull water past it. But the problem was that, that um, depending on how the, the bathyphotometer was designed, you'd measure different things uh, by, with different bathyphotometers. And that's not how science works. You want something that is replicated by every investigator that uses it. And so, um, and also it, it was usually low pumping rates. So we were, 
the, the Navy was concerned that really important stuff like krill, all krill are bioluminescent, um, were probably evading capture. And so they weren't getting a true measure of light in the ocean. And I should mention that the reason they cared was because submarines moving through the water at night stimulate bioluminescence, which can be seen at the surface. And so um, they wanted to have a predictive capability of where bioluminescence was going to be bright enough to reveal submarines. Hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, I spent quite a bit of time developing the HIDEX. And so after I completed my postdoc, that's when I got the job at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institution. And the point for me was I wanted to, to learn more about bioluminescence, but I wanted to do it directly by seeing it for myself, which meant I needed a midwater submersible like the one I'd used earlier, Deep Rover. And the only ones in the world that could do um, what I needed done were at Harbor Branch Oceanographic. They had the two Johnson Sealing submersibles. Mm -hmm. um, so scoring a, a position there was just um, fantastic as far as I was concerned. And then, you know, I was using those for uh, from 1989 till 2009 when they retired the subs. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So, and you you did over 250 dives on these submarines. I mean, you spent an extraordinary amount of time in the deep dark ocean. Did you do you have a a favorite bioluminescent creature? I used to ask people what the, what their favorite sea creature is, and I. I got asked the question and I couldn't answer it because they're all my favorites. So I stopped asking, but I kind of want to know what your like couple of your favorite bioluminescent creatures are. Well, I'll, I'll say one of my favorites is um, the uh, deep sea octopus, which is now called the glowing sucker octopus because of our discovery that instead of suckers, it has light organs. And oh. so that was an astonishing discovery, which actually ended up, um, one of the pictures I took of it ended up on the cover of Nature um, because uh, it was actually evolution caught in the act. You can, um, if you examine their, these light organs, you can still see um, the remnants of muscle bands from, what, they used to be suckers, mm. but they have evolved into light organs. So it actually explains a lot about why there are so many animals in the ocean that make light compared to on land. And the reason is that in the open ocean environment, there's no hiding places. There's no trees or bushes for animals to hide behind. And so as the ocean filled up with nastier and faster swimming predators, animals that couldn't outrun them had no choice but to find some place to hide. And so many of them um, went down into the dark depths to hide. But the prob problem with hiding down there is that there's no, no real food because most of the food is produced at the surface by photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them vertically migrate every single day. It's the largest animal migration pattern on the planet animals drop down into the dark depths at sunrise and then rise up to the surface at sunset. And if you look at it on sonar, it's so massive a migration that there's many a captain that thought he was about to run aground, seeing that what looked like the bottom rising up to meet his ship. So all of these animals are living in near darkness 
Mm-hmm. And that meant that, that all, they were already visual animals. And so the selection pressure was to evolve um, better signaling capabilities for a dim light environment. So they, de- they developed um, uh, more sensitive eyes Mm-hmm. and then enhanced signaling capabilities. So here's where the glowing sucker octopus comes in, because you know pr- most of um, the octopods we know of, uh, or octopuses, depending on uh, who you are, um, <laughs> um, li- live on the bottom, and they use suckers to hang, to hang on to things on the bottom. But for some reason, this animal got pushed out into the open ocean environment, um, where its suckers weren't useful for hanging on to things on the bottom anymore, but they could still be used for one other thing an octopus will use its suckers for, and and that's to attract a mate. Mm -hmm. The octopus will throw his suckers up over his head to attract a mate, kind of like a wet t-shirt contest. Look what I've got. (laughs) And uh, the, um, you know, first step was to make them more reflective and, so they have kind of a reflective layer in the back of the um, the sucker, um, but then uh, eventually they evolved this ability to make light. So the guess is that with this octopus, you know, it was initially to attract mates, but then it also um, became useful for attracting food, because this octopus has a really strange diet. Um, instead of the fish and shellfish and other things that most octopods on the bottom um, consume, they uh, live almost entirely on a diet of copepods. Copepods are like the insects of the ocean. So it would be kind of like a raccoon in Florida living on mosquitoes. Sure, there's enough of them, but how do you catch them? Mm -hmm. So when we've seen this octopus from the submersible, it's often hanging upside down with its arms spread wide and it's got webbing between the arms. So it looks like an upside down umbrella when you see it like that. Mm. And it twinkles its lights to, to attract the copepods in like moths to a flame. And then it closes down its web into this big red balloon that then pulls the copepods down towards its mouth in the center of its arms there. And it, survives very nicely on a diet of copepods, but only thanks to its bioluminescence. Amazing. So it's both, it's both used to feed itself and to attract mates. Right. Like a lot of bioluminescence, it, it, uh, a lot of animals that produce light um, use it for multiple functions. And the three primary functions are finding food. So you have animals like anglerfish that have glowing lures, um, uh, or they have, uh, there's animals like flashlight fish that have a built-in flashlight near their eye to help them find the food. Mm -hmm. Um, For attracting mates, um, so just like the um, glowing sucker octopus, but you know, some of them have elaborate light organs that, and they're different on the males than the females, so it helps animals find each other in the dark and and recognize, you know, oh, you're, you're one of my species. Um, and then the other thing it gets used for a lot is for defense. And so there's a lot of animals that can, for example, release their bioluminescent chemicals into the water just the way a squid or an octopus will release an ink cloud 
they'll release a glowing cloud of light into the face of a predator, temporarily blinding it while they escape into the darkness. Um, and uh, they will also use it um, for camouflage. So, you know, I said they, they migrate down into the dark depths during the day, but it's a long, long way down to get completely out of the light. Mm -hmm. And so if you can camouflage yourself in some way, so you don't have to go quite so deep, that's advantageous. So a lot of fish have that flat shape and silver sides. The flat shape of a fish produces a very narrow profile that makes it harder to see bef from below. That's not for hydrodynamic reasons. If, if you wanna be able to swim fast, you're big and round like a tuna or a shark, but to be able to, to hide, you have a flattened silhouette, narrow silhouette, silver sides to reflect the light down, but then an enormous number of animals out there produce bioluminescence from their bellies that exactly matches the color and the intensity of downwelling sunlight. And if a cloud goes over the sun and dims the sunlight, they dim their belly lights. So they just, it's the perfect cloaking device. They disappear. That's amazing. Nature is so fascinating. So one of the other things that I thought was interesting that animals can use bioluminescence for in the deep ocean is to, if they're under attack, they'll flash and it attracts, it's a warning light and it can attract other predators to attack their attacker, um, which kind of segues me into, you were the first person to film the giant squid. Nobody was able to do it before because we go down in ROVs and really noisy machinery and you use bioluminescence. Would you please share that story? Sure. So the kind of display you're talking about is called a bioluminescent burglar alarm. Burglar and alarm. It's exactly like the burglar alarm on your car. The flashing lights and honking horn are meant to attract attention, hopefully of the police that'll capture the burglar and take him away, but will at least scare the burglar away because he doesn't want to be caught. <laughs> so um, a lot of animals that use bioluminescence for a variety of purposes, if they've got any light producing capability, if they're caught in the clutches of a predator, and have no other hope for escape, they'll flash every light organ they've got. And it's basically a scream for help to attract attention because a larger predator may come and not care about eating them, but care about eating the much bigger thing that's attacking them. And so it affords them an opportunity for escape. So uh, I had for a long time um, being concerned that when we were diving in submersibles with these bright lights and noisy thrusters, we had to be scaring animals away. And I wanted to be able to explore the ocean in a different way. And so um, I developed this camera system called the Eye in the Sea that uses red light that's invisible to most deep sea animals that only see blue light. Um, and that was actually trickier, a lot trickier than it is on land. We do it all the time if we want to watch um, nocturnal animals and not scare them away. We use infrared light, which they can't see, and in fact, we can't see, and then we use infrared sensitive cameras. Can't do that in the ocean because infrared light is absorbed so thoroughly by water that it just doesn't transmit at all. But I wanted to see if I could find a red light that I could see the animals with, but they couldn't see me. And 
it, it was tricky, but I eventually found a way to do that. And so I, I put them on this camera called the eye in the sea that I wanted to leave on the bottom so it would sit down there quietly, battery powered. But I didn't want to just put bait in front of the camera because I didn't want to attract just scavengers. I wanted to attract things we might not have ever seen before. And so I wanted a bioluminescent burglar alarm. <laughs> so the one I picked was uh, that of the deep sea jellyfish Atola, which is one of the most spectacular burglar alarms I've ever seen. It's, it's breathtaking when you see it. If you just tap the, the nerve ring on the Atola a few times, it will generate this pinwheel of light that goes round and round and round and round and round. Um, and so that's what we imitated. Uh, we just put a, a, a ring of blue LEDs on a circuit board and um, embedded them in epoxy and created this, what we called electronic jellyfish. And so I wanted to be able to just put that on the bottom of the ocean and see if it would in fact attract large predators. And so the very first time I got to use it on an expedition was the Gulf of Mexico in 2004. And I had it set down kind of on this oasis, a place where I thought a lot of large predators might patrol. And I had programmed it so that the first four hours was just observing with red light because I wanted to see into the ocean like I'd never been able to see before without scaring the animals away. And then four hours into the deployment, I had uh, programmed the electronic jellyfish to come on for the very first time. So that first four hours reviewing the video, I was just ecstatic because I could tell for the first time the animals weren't being disturbed by the light. And I had a window into a world that had for so long escaped me. And then the electronic jellyfish came on. And 86 seconds after it came on for the first time, we recorded a squid over six feet long that was completely new to science, couldn't even be placed in any known scientific family. And I could not have asked for a better proof of concept of this new way of exploring the deep sea. That's absolutely incredible. That had to feel so good. <laughs> Look, it works and we found an animal that nobody's seen before. Yeah, I gotta tell you that, that feeling is got to be one of the best feelings in the world. Which one? The one that it actually works or the one that you discovered something nobody else has before? Discovering something nobody else has before. It's, it's, if it's such a great feeling. It, it's, it's embedded in our DNA. I mean, every time a baby crawls away from the safety of its mother's arms to see something new, that's a primal instinct for discovery and we've got it in our DNA. Mm. Yeah, I've not haven't thought about it like that before, but you're right. And there's and your work highlights that there is still so much out there that we don't know and there is so much left to discover just in the ocean. Yeah, the number you hear often is that we've only explored 5% of the ocean. That number is not even close because what they're talking about um, is the um, amount of the ocean bottom that we have mapped with sonar. Um, so it, it's a remote sensing capability. And actually we're now up closer to 30% of the bottom of the ocean. But as far as visiting, 
actually going and seeing with our, our eyes or with cameras, we've only explored about 0.05%. I mean, you've been in the deep sea and then you, now you've kind of navigated towards shore quite a bit. And before we dive into Orca and the Kilroys and the, the watershed projects that you work on, something that really struck me was that you do use a lot of tech and you mentioned that you're a tech junkie. Are you programming and kind of developing this? Are you working with a team of engineers? Like how does that work to create these amazing, you know, photos or bioluminescent animals or we'll get into a minute with your Orca Kilroys. Like how do you even create something so technologically advanced? So I've just been very fortunate to work with a, a, a number of very talented engineers. Um, I did take some engineering classes. I audited them um, during graduate school. Uh, and it allows me to talk to engineers in um, a more sensible way about what is and isn't possible and make trade-offs. Um, but um, it's, uh, I, I'm just super grateful to some of the really amazing engineers I've had the opportunity to work with. Very cool. So let's dive into Orca. What inspired, I mean, you're doing deep sea research, you get to, you get to go in ROVs, um, you're researching bioluminescence. What prompted you to start your own organization? So as I mentioned, um, uh, it was becoming obvious that Harbor Branch was phasing out its submersible program. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about moving on to another position. And then in 2003, the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy Report came out. 2004, the U.S. Um, uh, I mean, the Pew Oceans Commission Report. And then in 2004, it was the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy Report. And these were a, a scientific consensus about the state of the ocean. And in my career, I'd never seen anything quite like them. Um, and the news was bad. I mean, the state of the ocean was, was alarming, especially in the coastal zone environment. Mm -hmm. As a deep sea biologist, I had been a bit isolated from just how bad things were becoming. And I felt like it was time to give back to the ocean. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this is something I can help with because one of the things that both reports emphasized was the need for more advanced technology for monitoring the state of the ocean in the coastal zone environment. And so I thought, well, that's something I could help with. So that was the impetus for starting ORCA, which stands for Ocean Research and Conservation Association. And, you know, we started out with this very high-tech focus. Um, but then 2008 came along. I wouldn't have made it, actually, except I got a, a MacArthur Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And I put all of that money into the technology we were developing at the time, um, which are these Kilroys, as we call them, these water quality monitors. We got that done, um, and they were they're smaller and cheaper than anything comparable, but they're still expensive. Mm -hmm. And so as 2008 came along and the bottom fell out of everything, started looking for lower cost solutions for how we could um, map pollution in the coastal zone environment. Um, because it's really important in terms of dealing with pollution that people realize that um, you need to stop it at its source. Mm -hmm. You can't take the cream out of the coffee after you've mixed it in. Mm 
<laughs> and so, you know, mapping where pollution was coming from was our primary focus. And so I was looking at another way of doing that besides these, this very high tech approach. And uh, I thought, well, if we took sediment samples off the bottom and tested them for toxicity, that might tell us where pollution was entering the system. But you, you, you know, testing for individual chemicals is very expensive and time consuming. That wasn't gonna work. So what I wanted was a low cost, um, broad spectrum bioassay as it's called a test. And, and uh, not too surprisingly, I focused on bioluminescence. <laughs> and so we actually use bioluminescent bacteria to test for toxicity in the ecosystem. So bioluminescence continues to be a major part of my life. <laughs> and then I've also been very, very fortunate because I've still been able to go out on submersibles um, and do expeditions. And so um, uh, last summer uh, with a group of colleagues of mine that I've worked with um, over the years, we did an expedition to the Gulf of Mexico mm -hmm. and we used the same camera system that I had developed that I used um, in 2012 to get those first images of a giant squid. Uh, and um, it worked just as well. And so we got the first images of a gi giant squid in our own backyard in the Gulf of Mexico, less than a hundred miles offshore. That's amazing. So you still get to incorporate your deep sea love and the, and the, littoral zone is what 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 keeps wanting to come out the coastal zones yeah um, i i feel incredibly lucky i i i just can't believe my good fortune sometimes <laughs> so how do you use bioluminescence to test for toxicity then so bioluminescent bacteria are are real different from other kinds of organisms most other kinds of organisms in that they glow all the time and the reason that they glow instead of flash is their light output is linked to their respiratory chain, basically their breathing. And so if you mix those bacteria with a, a bit of sediment um, and the light goes out, it indicates that there's a toxin that's interfering with um, the respiratory chain. And there's actually quite a large number of toxins that do that. And so um, you can find out based on just how small a dose it takes to make the light go out, um, just how toxic it is. And so we create these pollution maps that look like weather maps where red is hot and blue is cold, mm -hmm. only red is toxic and blue is non-toxic. And so you get these red spots right offshore um, and you, you know, trace it back to the place on land where it's coming from and you've saved enormous amounts of time and money in terms of trying to figure out where the pollution is originating from. Well, you still have the Kilroy Station throughout the Indian River Lagoon, which is a really long stretch of inland body of water that gets flushed with ocean water along the east coast of Florida. And it tests for a bunch of different parameters. And you have a lot of citizen science involvement with this, and I think that's really cool. So could you explain what the Kilroy Academy is and why it's so important? So Kilroy Academy um, was um, an idea for trying to get the community more involved with uh, the water quality issues that we're facing. Mm -hmm. The Indian River Lagoon, as you said, is long. It's 156 mile lo miles long, and it was once called the most biologically diverse estuary in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, probably can't 
claim that anymore. I've <laughs> been having a lot of problems with um, toxic algae blooms uh, and um, brown tide and uh, um, just not a completely healthy ecosystem anymore. And so the Kilroys um, provide the kind of high tech data that scientists need to try to figure out exactly what's going on. So we measure, you know, the nutrient loads that are entering the water. Um, and we look at oxygen levels. Um, we were actually had uh, Kilroy's in place in a place where we had a massive fish kill in the northern part of the lagoon and were able to um, figure out the multiple factors that played into that. Um, and so Kilroy Academy, which is at kilroyacademy.org, um, was an idea for um, making available to students this uh, information. So all of our Kilroy data is free online mm -hmm. at teamworka.org. Um, and Kilroy Academy has um, educational videos, uh, hands-on training uh, um, studies and um, worksheets that can be used in the classroom so the students can learn about tides, for example, and then go to the Kilroys and be able to see how tides um, differ in different parts of the lagoon. Um, and, um, you know, look at how um, temperature is affecting algae growth. And there, you know, th that was the, the concept. Um, we have found teachers don't use it as much as I had hoped they would. Um, uh, and there's an intimidation factor, um, because of the, the, um, tech and the, the science involved. Um, so we're working now on a citizen science center that we're developing, um, here on the Indian River Lagoon, where we're giving, um, individuals hands-on training, um, in doing citizen science projects. So, for example, we're teaching them the pollution mapping technique that I mentioned, and they're becoming involved in collecting that data for the community. We have a fishing uh, group that goes out and collects fish um, and um, gives them to us to analyze for toxins in the fish. Um, so we have a, a variety of uh, different hands-on projects that, that we're developing. And um, I'm, I'm a big, big advocate of this concept of citizen science. Mm -hmm. When I was first developing ORCA, I realized that there's kind of this gap between knowledge and action. So you've got this situation where science kind of gets done in a silo. Um, it's very meticulous and plodding. And um, then a paper gets published and gets put on a shelf time policy is being made usually under time constraints and money constraints and that information isn't being figured into the science information isn't being figured into the equation at all and so I kind of researched how you bridge that gap and it turned out that the David and Lucille Packard Foundation had done a study on how you bridge the knowledge gap and they found that the most effective way to do so was to get um, stakeholders, community members, working with the scientists to collect the data. I mean, even preferably politicians themselves <laughs> helping to collect the data. And I'm not even sure they called it citizen science at that point, but um, that's what it is. 
Uh, and I've become much more of an advocate of citizen science because you know just the way a well-informed electorate is a prerequisite for democracy, I think a science literate citizenry is essential for maintaining the health of our planet. And the places where people are gonna wanna live in the future are gonna be places where communities have come together to protect their local ecosystems. And that can be done best by citizen scientists. Absolutely. That's really well said. And one of the things that the Kilroys do, like we talked about, is kind of highlight where pollution comes from. And you just said one of the best things that citizens can do or the best places to live in the future are going to be where people came together to protect their local ecosystems. So what are some things that people can do that live in these watershed areas to protect their local ecosystems? Well, I think there's a lot that they've they've heard about, like you know, yeah. <laughs> getting rid of single-use plastic. But um, uh, one of the ones that doesn't get mentioned enough, I think, especially um, here in Florida, is landscaping. Mm -hmm. um, so, unfortunately, in Florida, we have a lot of these waterfront communities that are bulkheaded. They've got seawalls and grass, sloping grass lawns, right down to the edge of the seawall. And so, there's no way you can mow that grass without the grass clippings going into the water. And uh, one of the things that's going on with the Indian River Lagoon is the bottom is being smothered in this black mayonnaise muck um, that wasn't there in the 1950s. Um, if, you, if you do a core sample, you can get down to pristine white sand. But it's, I mean, many feet thick sometimes, this muck is just smothering the life in the lagoon. And a lot of it is coming from organic matter and clay and other things um, that result from, from um, landscaping around the lagoon. So people can re-landscape. Um, and you know, what you want to do is not have that, gr that grass go right up to the edge of the, the uh, seawall. You don't want the grass clippings to go into the water. Um, in fact, you know, organic farmers know this. Grass tea is something they use to do organic um, fertilizer. You just take grass clippings, put them in a bucket, and if you want to speed it up, you put in a little aer uh, aeration, you know, aquarium bubbler, and in a couple of days, you've got fertilizer. Well, that's what we're doing to the lagoon every time we allow grass clippings to go in. And um, this is, you know, something that's easily fixed. The best thing to do would be to replace the seawalls entirely with a living shoreline, mm -hmm. like mangroves. Um, or seagrass, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, or Spartina. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, um, you know, the next best thing would be to have a swale. So you've got kind of this dip before you hit the seawall where the, the water and the grass clipping, clippings uh, accumulate. And then the next best thing would be a buffered shoreline where you just have um, native plants planted along the edge of the seawall and, and then the grass behind it. All of those things could help make a big difference. Mm -hmm. and I, I think that's a really good point. Um, and this isn't just, you know, we speak to Florida, but there are waterways throughout the entire United States that have lawns backing up to them. And I mean, not even the US, there's waterways throughout the entire world that have pretty landscape lawns backing up to them. So this is applicable anywhere. Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting. I heard you speak about 
how do you get homeowners to change their minds, right? And it's not, you can't just hand people a pamphlet and be like, your lawn is killing our waterways because they, their defenses go up and they shut down. Um, so you have a more unique approach. So what are some of the tactics that you use to try to get people to change their minds in their lawns? Yeah, we, we really don't believe in finger pointing. I think that's <laughs> just totally counterproductive. We're all polluters and we're just trying to figure out solutions. And so, you know, wherever possible, if we can get them involved directly in, in helping us, you know, the citizen science projects, even if they start out in a completely different project, they start learning more about what it takes to help a healthy ecosystem. And I'd also like to point out that it isn't just the people that live on the waterfront. Mm -hmm. People inland, you know, if, if you're mowing your lawn and the grass clippings end up in the gutter, those gutters usually feed directly into the local water bodies. Yes. So, you know, landscaping for the environment, um, it, it, there's many layers to that. It's not just reducing the grass clippings, but it's also native plants so that, that you can sustain wildlife. Um, it makes a huge difference. And so it's, it's uh, once again about having a well-informed citizenry that, that knows about their local ecosystems so they can protect them. Absolutely. So I have a couple more questions as we kind of wrap up here. What advice do you have for somebody that wants to be a marine scientist and or make a big difference in their community? Well, I mean, if you want to become a marine scientist, I... I strongly urge students not to just keep taking marine biology courses. That's, that's the worst thing you can do. Um, what you want to do is diversify. And, uh, you know, the way I got invited on that first expedition um, with the WASP was because I was an expert with this instrument that um, people wanted information from. And so, you know, you, you get good at something. You, you get good at... Um, geomapping or ecotoxicity or um, any number of other specialties um, that makes you valuable to labs that are working on things that you're interested in. So that's, you know, that's the way to proceed. That's great advice. Yeah. It seems counterproductive, but it's absolutely true because there's a lot of people that want to be marine biologists that take marine biology classes and then don't have anything that sets them apart or makes them an asset to a lab. So that's a really good point. So this is gonna be interesting. One of my very favorite questions to ask is, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And as somebody that has spent lots and lots of time in and under the water, I'm really curious if there's one or two stories that kind of come to mind. And this could be just the most amazing day out in the field um, where everything went right and <laughs> you filmed the giant giant squid or found a new species of octopus um, or it could be something that it, everything went wrong and you're and you're just like well that makes a really great story now and that was a lot of lessons learned well the um the lead up to that you know one of the best days ever was the day um we filmed that squid that was completely new to science yeah um i i, I think it's got to be in the in in the top three, at least. Um, and one of the worst days was uh, several months before that, when I was trying to prep for that cruise. And uh, I had, a, had the earliest stages of the Eye in the Sea camera system that I was still prototyping. And I had no money for this. I had had to kludge it together from 
all kinds of different funding sources, including selling imagery, um, which, you know, was um, desperation. Um, <laughs> and bioluminescent uh, imagery? Yeah, okay. images of the some some of the photographs um, that I've taken over the years, um, and uh, I had agreed to let um, a, a cinematographer come along on on this first test of the I and the C, and I I was I was reticent to do it, but he seemed like a good guy and he was trying to tell a good story about what it takes to develop technology. So it seemed like a good idea at the time, although I could see where it might go wrong and boy, did it go wrong <laughs> because, um, you know, the first deployment, we bring it back up and the system had leaked. There was water sloshing in the camera oh, no. and it was, it was definitely an extremely low point especially because it was now going to end up on national television. <laughs> and so I was really, really afraid that it was going to damage my opportunity for future funding for the I and the C. So I had a real, real scramble to figure out a way to get everything repaired and ready for that expedition. Um, and then to have, after all of that, film that squid that was completely new to science was um, just amazing yes so it made that moment that much sweeter exactly amazing uh at the end of each episode i like to wrap up with a conservation asker um topic that people can go forth and do and bring into their community what is your conservation ask for the audience well first of all please come to teamworka.org and mm -hmm. and uh, figure out how you can help we can use all the help we can get um, and uh, just become uh, a citizen science and scientist in any way you possibly can. Um, there's uh, a National Science Foundation site um, called SciStarter, S-C-I-S-T-A-R-T-E-R.com, SciStarter.com, and it pairs people up um, nationwide uh, with your local citizen science projects. Um, and uh, you can make a very, very big difference. Great ask, thank you. And if the audience wants to connect with you, find with find you, teamorca.org, is there anywhere else that's a good place to find you and your work? That's the best place. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. 
one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.